Welcome to the Leadership Conversations podcast. I'm your host, Jono White. I'm the founder and principal consultant of Clarity. We are an Australian-based consultancy that works with leaders around the world, and our passion is to invest in people to become everything they're meant to be in order to fill the world with healthy organizations that people love to work for and customers line up to buy from. The goal of this podcast is to invest in you and your leadership. If you're just joining us for the first time, then feel free to check out consultclarity.org. That's our website, consultclarity.org. We have so many free resources on there. The most popular being our seven questions on leadership series. We've had more than 1,500 leaders from around the world in all different sectors give their in-depth answers on leadership, what books they love, what they found most challenging, uh, the most meaningful stories, how they how they structure their time through the day. That's free, so go and check it out. And we'd love to interview you about your leadership. I believe you have advice from your experience, your context, and your life so far that is important and can help other leaders. It's also a great way to give back. It's free to get involved, and you can do so by going to consultclarity.org forward slash seven dash questions dash interest, or just Google consultclarity.org seven questions interest and fill out the form that pops up. We have a free resource for you on our website. It's called Leadership Survival Guide. It's a 57-page ebook. It has interviews with 10 world-class leaders, and you can go to consultclarity.org. It's right at the top and get that today. Uh, we also have a daily email that we send out to over 15,000 leaders, and that email contains the highlights, our best content from our podcasts, our blog, uh, my book, uh, the books that we're loving that are out there about leadership, it's also the best way to get access to our masterclasses and workshops before anyone else. And there's also exclusive and limited uh, special options just for subscribers. And you can subscribe by going to consultclarity.org forward slash subscribe. Now, my gift to you is to work incredibly hard to provide the best leadership content I can to invest in you and your leadership. So if you're finding our content helpful, if you find this podcast helpful, then your gift to me uh, could be this. If you, if you do find it helpful, then write a review or rate our content and make sure you subscribe or follow. I can't emphasize enough how helpful that is. It really does help us to get the word out there so we can invest in more leaders to become everything they're meant to be. It also means a lot to me personally when people like you and people in our community share our content on social media. So if you do that, then please do look for me, Jono White, to tag me and look to tag Clarity uh, on whatever platform you're on. And our team, including me, I'm always looking to see when people have mentioned us so that I can engage with you. And also we look at sharing content. So if you you write something about something we've done, there's also a good chance we'll share that with our followers. So if you could do that, that is a massive, massive help as we try to invest in as many leaders as we can around the world. Last of all, you can check out my book about how to deal with difficult people even if you hate conflict. It's called Step Up or Step Out. It's available on Amazon. You can just look up Step Up or Step Out, John O'White, or you can go to store.consultclarity.org forward slash book and check it out there. I 
have coached leader after leader after leader and in more than 50% of the sessions, this topic comes up. How do I deal with this person? I'm finding it really difficult and, and I just wanna find a way that doesn't blow up to do a really, just to have a difficult conversation, to lead them better. How do I do that? There's a three-step process that I outline in this book that I believe can help you. Okay, let's get into today's episode of the Leadership Conversations podcast. Enjoy. Welcome to another episode of the Leadership Conversations podcast. Today's guest, I'm really excited uh, to have the Reverend Dr. Lynn Arnold coming on today. Um, Lynn is uh, currently has a, has a couple of main um, sort of roles. We were just chatting about it before we started recording, and I'm sure Lynn can fill you in, but uh, Reader in Theological Ethics at St. Barnabas College. And uh, once again, which will be really interesting to unpack, the youngest or the most junior, or not, I should say the most junior member of the team to get that right, Lynn, sorry, no offense, uh, the most junior member of the team at St. Peter's Cathedral, Adelaide. <laughs> I've stumbled my way through that introduction. Welcome to the podcast, Lynn. Well, thank you very much indeed. It's great to be with you. Now, if you cut that snippet out just there, I did introduce you as the youngest member at <laughs> of uh, St. Peter's Cathedral Adelaide, yeah. and I think you should just take that one and run with it. Um, but in all seriousness, can you, um, and, and your background is is incredible as well, I can't wait to chat about your story, but can you fill our listeners in on, on uh, the different things that you are doing today? Well, uh, really, I, I guess in one sense, I regard myself as semi-retired, but what that includes is that I am uh, the junior on the ministry team at St. Peter's Anglican Cathedral. I preach uh, uh, a bit once every three weeks. I run services once a week. Uh, I also organ I'm part of our Lenten and September study programs uh, and uh, run a running a retreat in a couple of months. I'm adjunct reader at the Theological College for the Diocese, St. Barnabas, and there I lecture in theological ethics uh, every second year. Uh, and I also have a, a weekly radio program on a Christian radio station, Life FM, uh, which uh, called somewhat unimaginatively, I suppose, uh, Sunday Night with Lynn Arnold. I, I don't promise a Saturday Night Live sort of program, but it is a very interesting <laughs> program of people I interview from around the world. Yeah, that's um, uh, that's really interesting. Thank you so much for filling us in on that. And, you know, I just as a bit of a tangent, something that I found really interesting recently uh, because I'm in podcasting, I'm always looking at the different ratings and different, you know, just, just trying to learn from other podcasters. And, and there's, um, I, I don't have his name in front of me. Well, I'll, I'll sneakily try to look it up while I'm, while I'm talking so I can tell you, but there's a Catholic priest who has a very, very popular podcast, um, which really, I, I think to be honest, Lynn, it, it really took me by surprise, um, but the just the the how popular this podcast is. I know that it's number one in um, in the, sort of the religious um, podcasts, but it, it also is quite high up, and 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 it just reflects to me. I think sometimes we we uh, gen, I'm generalizing here, but but people can assume that there isn't a wider interest in let's let's use the word religion. Um, but I just found that really, uh, really fascinating that just when you look at purely at the data of what people are listening to, that people mm. are tuning in. And, and that's just one show, which I'm, I'm going to find. I'll find it before the end of the episode. So well, I can tell it, 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 
it interests me this question because uh, while uh, this station doesn't do surveying of its weekend programming, so I have no idea how many people are out there, other than my wife and my mother and my family. <laughs> uh, the uh, what I do f find myself pleasantly surprised by is just going through the community. Uh, people say, "Oh, I listen to your program on Sunday," and, and I don't even know who they are, but. Uh, so, you know, there's, there's an audience out there which uh, can be much wider than you think. Um, and I find that encouraging. I, I, some of the people, I, uh, when, when I get into conversation with them, I, I can, it's clear they're Christians. But I've even had some who are, who are not Christians at all who uh, can occasionally be uh, listening to the program. Yeah, that's um, – I, I think these – it is one of those things that I think we can make the mistake of really assuming – and I mean, society in this area, I think we can make some assumptions about this. And that's why I think it's really interesting to look at the data. Um, I, I found the the one, I think this is the one I was talking about. It's definitely the, the so Friar Mike Schmitz, and it's the Ascension Catholic Faith Formation, the Bible in a Year. And, and as an example, that's number one in the religious, uh, religion and spirituality on Chartable. But um, it's also quite highly... Uh, rated when it comes to overall podcasts. I'll try to to tell you. Mm. Um, so, uh, oh, yeah, here it is. Okay, so I'm literally looking at it, so I'm not making up facts. This is from chartable.com, um, <laughs> <laughs> just to make sure I'm getting my facts right. So in, in America, so Apple Podcasts, specifically Apple, United States of America, all podcasts, mm -hmm. this um, is number 19. So the 19th most popular podcast in oh, all wow. of America on, um, on Apple is The Bible in a Year with Friar Mike Schmitz. Isn't that interesting? That's very interesting. Well, it sets me a goal to go for. I've, uh, uh, I, I might rethink the, the, the programming for next year. Uh, but <laughs> for all of that, it's been, I, 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 I've had some pretty interesting guests on. I've had John Lennox on a couple of times now, and, uh, I've had, uh, uh, Greg Sheridan from, uh, the, the Australian and the author of a couple of fascinating yes. books on Christianity, John Dixon, um, I, I've, I've had a soapy staff from America on too, Jonathan Jackson, oh, wow. uh, who used to star on General Hospital and uh, Nashville, but he is a profound uh, th a theological thinker, mm. and I've had, a, had him on a couple of times and uh, want to have him on again. Well, I want to encourage all of our listeners, whether you're religious or not, and as we just discussed, I, I think for a lot of people, regardless of their religious beliefs there's an interest and so sunday nights with uh with lynn arnold um and you can you can look that up well thank you for going with me on that tangent um i i just thought that would be really interesting and there's a uh, a little hmm. fact for you about podcasting but i'm more interested in you sharing yes, well, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna look that up thank <laughs> you indeed i'm more interested in hearing you share to tell you the truth i, I want to start there's so much to your story let's start by let's start by admitting that we're not going to get to a hundredth of it because um, your career so far is uh, really from looking at your career, Lynn, I, I find it fascinating. So we're not going to get to everything, but we'll, we'll cover some, we'll cover some things. I'll, I'll ask about some key moments and I want to mm -hmm. start right at the beginning, not even of your career, but if you think back to your childhood and growing up, what are some moments or even some themes from that season of your life, Lynn, that really shaped you into the person and the leader that, uh, that you are today? Well, I've said this in some talks I've given about my life that I think the greatest gift that my parents, my very, very loving parents gave my sister and I is the capacity for change, 
to accept change, to not only accept change, but to be in, uh, to be excited by it. And the way in which they delivered that gift was that by the time I was 12, I had been to eight primary schools, and that wasn't because I was being expelled. Uh, I, it was because we we'd ended up living in four different countries. Um, and so the constancy of change in my growing up uh, meant that I, I, I was constantly given the opportunity to, to meet new people, make new friends, and also cope with uh, uh, sort of moving on from friends who I'd had before, uh, not necessarily dropping them, you know, keeping contact in some cases over many, many decades. Uh, and I'm so grateful that my parents gave me that because mm. it meant that uh, I've been able to have a career where I felt very blessed that I have moved on to quite radically different uh, types of work, um, which have involved being able to accept change as the norm. You know what? That's so interesting that you start there because I have been very, I've been surprised doing this podcast, how much I've learned and how much there've been really surprising patterns that have stood out to me. And this is, this is top three is the number of times I cannot tell you how many guests, if people go back and listen, maybe they can do account for me. The number of times when it comes to, you know, what part of your childhood had maybe some of the biggest um, impact on, on how you, how, on how you lead or how you led through your career. And it's, uh, it, it comes up again and again, exactly what you just mentioned. People talk about moving around when they're younger and not everyone. And, and you know, when, mm. when you're walking out there, um, chatting with people in life, not everyone thinks of it fondly, but I do find that leaders who have that as a formative background when they grew up, they, they consistently look back to it and go, there's something about moving friendship groups and, and having to adjust um, mm. that really does build, it seems to build resilience. It seems to build this ability to handle change, which, um, yeah, so it's just interesting that yet another guest I'll, Lynn, I'll, I'll, mentions that again. Wow. Yeah, you're quite right. On, on one side, it's, it's building resilience, which is a kind of uh, capacity building. But on another side, which I really liked, is it was exciting. You know, you yes. come across new situations, uh, new communities, uh, and and as a kid, as a as a young person, I really, really uh, enjoyed having new encounters. So I wasn't sort of having to strengthen myself and armor myself up to cope. Sure. Well, maybe I was, but but I was actually finding that this was a this was quite a joyride. And and do you think that was more to do with you and how you're wired, or was a big part of that how your parents? uh you know set the temperature around you to handle those different situations well that's a that's a very interesting way you you put the question i, I my my parents uh, brought both my sister and i up with the capacity that this was situation normal uh you know there was never even the possibility oh dear how are you coping kids uh i, I don't ever recall that question being asked uh they loved us dearly but they just assumed we would go with the flow. Um, now, my father had been uh, uh, born and brought up in, 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 in one country and didn't end up leaving it until, uh, apart from war service, until he was um, uh, 30. Um, but then very quickly got into this habit of moving around quite a lot. Uh, my mother had had a bit more of a changing background uh, to her life. Uh, but it was just the way in which you approach it, that if you, if you approach a situation with children 
that uh, presumes there is a problem and you're going to help them cope with the problem versus here's a new opportunity and present them as something that, wow, you've, you've got a real gift being given to you. Yeah, I think, um, I think you hit the nail on the head there. I think that is a diff- it's a, it's a mindset. Um, and, uh, I'm probably particularly aware of this right now, Lynn, because my wife, uh, Liz and I, we have our first child, little Roman is 12 weeks this week. So I'm, uh, right at the, oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> I'm right at the beginning stages of parenting going, okay, so, uh, I, I've got this little sponge smiling up at me, um, and what what do I want him to to be absorbing? Because he is absorbing everything. Well, my wife and I, when when we had our children, we had a lot of children very close together. We had five children under three years, ten months, four of whom were under seventeen months, and uh, and we happily went travelling with them at the very youngest age, um, uh, you know, travelling uh, long distances uh, to to Europe and America in economy class. Uh, with two babies, uh, you know, because we had two sets of twins, um, sometimes had its own challenges, but you know, they got used to very early on. Uh, that's what we do. <laughs> oh, that's good to hear. Maybe I'll have to um, ask you more about that because that's what we're we're considering at the moment. <laughs> the um, weighing up uh, different international. Um, yeah, how we're going to approach that as a family international travel. But we do hear from a lot of people, obviously everyone's different, but that uh, particularly when they're really little, it, it can be actually quite, um, uh, it can be a good time to travel travel with kids even when they're really little because yeah. they, they're not running around everywhere. Well, Lynn, I want to, uh, let's move on to the next stage of your life. And, and I want to ask you about one of your earliest leadership opportunities. As you think back in your life, can you remember one of the first times you were really in the deep end as a leader? You were managing a group of people. You were responsible well, for a project. At, at, at university, at, at university um, I was uh, uh, very active in the, in the, in the anti-war movement. Uh, I had a strong conscientious objection to uh, to the policy of the government at the time, uh, strongly opposed uh, our going to war in uh, Vietnam, and therefore became very active at, 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 at uh, university age in the opposition to that, and ultimately became the co-leader uh, of that at the state level. Um, it, uh, it meant I had to uh, learn very quickly to deal with some pretty uh, tense situations, um, some aggressive situations, and try and do so in a spirit of trying to bring people on the journey, uh, because I, I, I believe strongly that that war was unjust, and therefore my, one of my tasks was not only to protest about it, but to try and argue the case for others that they might come along and uh, see, see my argument. And And when you were, I mean, it sounds like you were <laughs> sort of thrown into that at a young age, like you said, because of your passion, which, you know, looking at your career, it's obviously clear that, um, uh, you know, that there's there's a, uh, a deep uh, passion uh, for justice, which, you know, it's really obvious just looking at your career and where you've invested your time and your energy, Lynn. Um, what, what are your biggest learnings as a young leader with this passionate topic, like you said, in difficult conversations and, and conflict with people who thought completely differently? 
Do you remember what, what were some of the biggest lessons from that stage of leadership? Well, I think a big learning for me then, which has influenced a lot of my approach to things since then, uh, and I'm going to use a, a, a 21st century jargon word or phrase, but which we didn't know then, and that is don't get caught up in an echo chamber. You know, here I was part of a movement that had strong views about the war, and it would have been easy for us just to talk amongst ourselves, reinforcing our own views, and end up being cut off from the broader community. And yet, if you actually believe in something, you want others to understand what you're arguing and hopefully have them come along too. So you need to break out of the echo chamber, which can ultimately become highly dangerous because it can end up driving you to uh, uh, extremist self, self-formed loops of reinforcement yeah. where you're not actually being challenged by opposing views. I've always, so it, it really was a very early education for me that the creative tension of ideas uh, is, is, is a vital part of being in leadership. If, you, if you're not going to accept hmm. that uh, in a democracy particularly, uh, you're supposed to be having this creative tension of ideas. And ultimately, of course, it would, it would be why I would go into parliament because I would feel it was so important there mm. um, that uh, you, you, you just not end up being, as I say, in these echo chambers. And getting really practical because I, I think it's amazing that you're talking about echo, echo chambers. Like you said, you didn't have that term then, but you're looking back at that um, as an early leadership lesson. And echo chambers is such a big challenge today, I really see, because social media and I think um, a lot of the algorithms are built to reinforce echo chambers. Not uh, and, and to be honest, I don't know if the intention well, is, are, is negative. A lot of the time it's they, just they are built. What, what are people interested in. So, yeah, so how do you handle that? What practical <laughs> tips would you give for leaders listening, particularly young leaders? Well, how do we break down I, our I echo chambers? Between, uh, the, Sorry, there's a polarization, I think, between two things. Either you can go sloganeering or you can go into argument. And I mean argument in the most positive sense of the word. And you, you mentioned the, the dangers of social media, and they, they have a, a strong capacity to reinforce sloganeering. Um, I am active on some forms of social media, uh, but I try in that situation to be um, posing reasons for, for points of view and, and to actually encourage people to participate in, in a dialogue about those uh, points of view um, rather than just sloganeering. I, I, I don't like the cheap shot slogan that makes me feel good because I'm, I've thumped my chest and, and got something off my chest. I'd rather sort of end up in some kind of discussion with other people. Um, and, uh, and so, frankly, uh, uh, some forms of social media are a little bit hard for that. Twitter, for example, is a bit hard for that. Mm. Yeah, so, so uh, fast forwarding from there, and like I said, we're, we're not going to be able to get to your whole uh, career so far because there there is so much to it. But as a way of jumping to the next point, I'd love to ask you from there, from that point, you're at university. Wow. Okay. Suddenly, you're passionate about um, that that you know that the war is wrong, and then you, you're finding your voice. You know, I'm interested in the next leadership ceiling from there. Suddenly you're, you're, you're dealing with a lot. You're in the deep end. As you think over the next years or decades, I'm always interested, Lynn, I guess I'm phrasing the question well, this I, way. 
because so many organizations hit a ceiling with number of staff. And I'm always interested in leaders hitting a ceiling where you go, that's it. I, I need to find something new or learn something new or bring in something new into how I do things to break through this. So yeah, do you remember when that next ceiling was for you after university as a leader? I, from, from being at university, I went into teaching and I was thrown in at the deep end because we were so desperately short of teachers at that stage. I, I hadn't even finished my degree uh, and I was able to get a job as a teacher. Uh, but I was appointed to a school that had lots of uh, what, what we might call socioeconomic challenges. Um, and so I very quickly had to learn that I was a t in, in a quite different environment to the, the somewhat comfortable university environment and the, uh, and the area where I'd grown up. I was now in an area where there was lots of real challenges facing the students I was before. And what struck me when I compared my own high school background was I had been brought up in a high school where the presumption was all of us would go to university. Here I was in a community where amongst the teachers in the school, there was even the view that, well, these kids aren't going to go to university. Uh, and I was quite dismayed to encounter that attitude from the very people who were supposed to be leading them on. So one of the roles I tried to play as an untrained teacher, I, I was doing my teacher training by night school while I was teaching in the classroom by day, um, was to was to try and encourage these kids to actually um, look at real opportunities for going further in life, and uh, and I you know I, I I had what I don't want to be too 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 immodest about this, but I I felt I had a, quite a degree of success in in helping some of these kids develop a higher horizon to look at than otherwise they had always been told about. That's interesting because it's, I guess, some of that skill set with what you learned in the classroom there. Did you find there were some parallels um, then into your career in politics and then in in, in leadership in, in the not-for-profit space? Did you find that there were parallels from what you learned in the classroom with oh, students? Absolutely. absolutely. Yeah, what, what were they? Absolutely, or well, quite a number. First of all, that do not make presumptions about what people will are capable of or in your opinion not capable of always provide always hold the view that uh, uh they they're capable of much more than many people give them credit for point one point two and it would be something that would be a very important part of the development of the the overseas aid sector and that is the rights of people with whom you work you know these teachers of whom i'm critical in the school i was teaching at did not actually presume, and I, I, being sweeping here, it was, only, it was only some of the teachers, they did not presume that these kids had a right to a bigger future um, than, than they assessed for them. In the overseas aid sector, one of the things that was a coming of, of age for the sector in the 1990s was that the people you work with in countries of the South or third world countries, as we used to talk about them, um, have rights. Uh, they do not owe it to you to let you do good things for them. Uh, you have to earn the right to work with those communities. Um, and, and, and that's that's a really big insight, you know, it, it, especially in emergency situations. And you, you see earthquakes and natural disasters and civil wars and, and, and people go in there to help and they say, okay, you, you just sit there and we'll, we'll be good to you. Well, that's absolutely wrong. 
because it's 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 presuming that they don't have any rights and that you have to earn the privilege of mm. working with them so to ask a very complex question how, how do you do that how do you earn the right in the not-for-profit space to earn the right to have the privilege to work with um, and invest in a particular stakeholder you actually spend the time sitting down and talking with people and, and okay in, in, in an emergency situation where you've had a tsunami which and I and I oversaw um, the World Vision's uh, response uh, to the tsunami in in, in Southeast Asia um, you don't have a lot of time to do talking to people so some of the stuff you have to get food and water there very quickly but the moment you've done some of that quick saving of life stuff you then have to say okay what is it that you're wanting us to help you with in rebuilding your community. Um, and so uh, we were sometimes criticized for taking a bit longer about, for example, rebuilding houses. Why? Because we actually wanted to talk to these communities. What is the sort of accommodation you need rather than just slapping up uh, barracks, barrack-like accommodation, um, and then then wandering away? Um, and, uh, it, it, and having other opportunities to, to effectively listen Mm. Um, and, and one of the things that I've, I think I've, I've always felt is critically important, don't just jump in, listen first. You know, the, going back to my time in politics, um, you, you often hear in politics, oh, the, the president's first hundred days, the prime minister's first hundred days, and they're going to do this, this, and this, and each day is a new thing they've done. My preferred style had been to spend that first hundred days listening to people. Indeed, when I took over as CEO of World Vision Australia, uh, my first hundred days, I, I met all the staff in groups of about twenty in World Vision Australia, which at that stage was an organisation of about four hundred people. Um, and so I would I would have a, an hour long session with groups of twenty, and I would ask them just simple questions: Where do you think we're at? What do you think of the challenges? Uh, what do you think of the opportunities? I did not. I, I came in as a greenhorn to the sector, so I, I wasn't going to tell them what they should be doing. Mm. I wanted to listen to where they were at, and then reflectively, um, I processed all that, and I came back and said, "Look, this is what I'm hearing. This is my reactions. I don't always feel I'm with you on everything, but on other things, I've learned a lot." And I and, and let's go. And then we formed a whole new strategy as to which way we were going to go. That's so good. Any any uh, leaders who are listening who are approaching a transition into a new role, I think should uh, should rewind that and listen again. I I uh, I can't speak highly enough of your approach. I think I, I was just chatting with a leader the other day. I was on site with him. He's a wonderful leader who I work with, and and he was telling me that he's he's been there um, for months now, and he's about to have his last meetings with because he did exactly what you did. He scheduled all of these meetings with so that he could have the chance to sit down and listen to everyone. And, and I have so much yeah. respect for that because you, um, it, they're very busy roles when you're um, in, in any sort of leadership role, particularly when you're starting, you're learning everything. But like you said, if you can, if you can listen first, that's, I think that's, that's got to be one of the mm. top five sort of leadership keys that I've come across. Listen first in almost any situation, but particularly things- new roles. One of the, so I, just coming back to this process, I did learn a huge amount. But also, because I was a greenhorn to the sector, um, I was to sometimes able to ask questions that they had stopped asking. 
And they, when they heard the question again, they said, oh, okay, well, I, I forget why we do this. Um, and so it was a, ca a case for them to be a bit of an eye-opener for them. And on other occasions, I was able to actually uh, have a bit of a helicopter view and say, look, what I'm hearing is this. Could we think about uh, this as, as, as an option or whatever? Um, and again, the, the, for example, in the case of World Vision, uh, a wonderful, wonderful organization. It was my privilege to work with them for 11 years. Uh, and I learned so, so much from them. Um, and yet I felt I was actually able to bring things to them, which they had, in a sense, forgotten about because they were so caught up in the day-to-day -day busyness mm. of their ministry. Yeah, that's that's um, that's so good, Lynn. I, I want to ask you about, as you reflect on your whole career so far, um, and like you said, you, you sort of uh, you view yourself as sort of semi-retired, even though he, you're wearing a few hats at the moment. Um, but across your career, who are some of the mentors who had the biggest positive influence on your leadership? Oh, it's always valuable to actually have people who you can walk alongside and and and, and they can help anchor you um, and uh, you can you can share uh, issues with them you know when I was teaching I, I had a, a, a there was an older teacher who just uh, I didn't seek him out he just sort of came alongside me and and and, and we spent a lot of time just talking he, he, he saw this untrained teacher who could easily have floundered and he just very gently um, came into my space when I was in politics, um, I found some of the uh, the people with, with longer service in Parliament. Um, I was able to go to and just uh, chew chew the fat with them, also uh, unburden a bit. And, and and by the way, that wasn't always just on my side of politics. I I, I was able to to find people on on all sides who uh, um, I, I would learn from. I, I would find them valuable. And in World Vision. Uh, People who had been working in the field a long time really put their lives uh, at, at risk in many cases uh, to, to learn from them the philosophy that they had evolved over the time of their career uh, helped me enormously. And now, of course, I'm in the church. Uh, it's so important, again, that I, I find sort of what we call spiritual uh, directors to uh, that you have one who you can just um, mm. reflect with. And uh, I, I know I'm jumping from topics here, but uh, I think it's so true where you where you mentioned um, the the different mentors. Actually, I want, I want to ask you. You mentioned politics. That's can you can you uh, think of any stories uh, from your time in politics of of how one of those mentors really helped you with a particular situation? I know I'm sort of putting you on the spot here. I didn't prep you for this, but. Um, any, any anything well, that comes no, to mind? I, I, let me share a story that uh, very, very early on, um, I was uh, uh, Minister of Education. I was a Minister of Education at a very young age. I was appointed 33, at, at the age of 33, to be the Minister. It was my first portfolio. It was the in those days, it was the largest area of government. These days, health is, but in the, in the 80s, education was. So I was responsible <coughs> for something like a third of the government budget. Um, and I was very enthusiastic about doing things there. And I, I, I visited a lot of schools. I spoke with teachers and parents and uh, students and community groups. And, and then I started doing some, introducing some uh, changes of, of, of policy after having done this. And at one stage, somebody 
came up with an idea. One group came up with an idea, and we can talk about what that idea was if you want, but I want to talk about the sort of the principle involved here. And I was very, very taken with it. But it was quite a radical idea, a radical idea, certainly for my side of politics. Uh, and uh, I, uh, well, I'll, let me tell you what it was. It was the idea that why shouldn't there be a Christian state school? Why shouldn't parents have the option mm. of different types of schools without having to pay private fees? And uh, and so a group of Christians who later would become very active in the low-fee private school movement uh, came to me and said, could you at least have a committee set up to investigate whether it's viable to have a Christian state school, which could be therefore an option for parents? I was taken with this idea. I knew there'd be a lot of work to be done, a lot of research to be done. Um, and so I, I talked about it with my uh, caucus committee. Uh, I talked about it. I mentioned it in cabinet. Uh, and then I went ahead and appointed the committee. Well, then in the estimates committee, uh, one of the opposition had heard about this and they asked me a question. Well, then some of my own side heard this whole issue in a bit of a different way and they no longer liked the idea and they 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 effectively stopped me from going ahead i had to uh stop the idea and i was uh, feeling a bit sorry for myself over this and in the following cabinet meeting i said to my colleague to a colleague of mine that i felt a bit unjustly done by you know i i, I mentioned it to you guys uh well, there weren't only guys or women in cabinet as well to to, to, to you and this this uh, colleague of mine, he said, Lynn, you didn't really, you know, you told us what you wanted us to hear to help you uh, feel good about making a decision, which actually didn't have our, all of our support. And if you really had thought about it, um, you weren't as transparent as you should have been. And I learned a huge amount from that, um, that uh, yes, it's true. My communication on reflection had... Uh, had been very, very circumspect. Um, I was deliberately, I, I guess what I was hoping for is that mm. I'd get this through and everyone would see what a great idea it was and then they'd all come on board so they didn't really need to know all the detail at the start. <laughs> and I'm so glad that happened to me at the start of my ministerial career yeah. because uh, it taught me, be very careful how you communicate to people that they're actually hearing what you say. And and, and if we have time, I, there's a... There's a the, a, a, a parallel kind of story happened to me when I was in World Vision. Yeah, yes, please. Um, I had some parallels, and it was I'd, 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 I'd been in World Vision uh, about six months, and I was so excited because these people were energized people. They had such wonderful energy. And I was a bit struck by the fact that some people had, had spent all their career working in one area, not another. And as somebody, and we talked at the start of the program about my preparedness for change, I was a bit taken aback that some people hadn't had much change in their life, and yet these were really energized, talented people who, who could so benefit from change. And so I talked with our HR people, and I said, you know, have we thought about having a, um, a, a bit of a program to help people move from one area of the organization to another, to get new experiences? And so they, they liked the idea, and they we called it the Motivate and Move program. And I got up, and, and, and you need to know, before I joined World Vision, there had been a bit of a financial crunch time, and they'd actually had to lay off some staff. And so when I came in, that was the backdrop. 
I called all the staff together in the Melbourne office and I, I spruced about this wonderful idea of encouraging people to look at their possibilities and Motivate and Move was now launched. And I felt very good. I went back to my office and then a, a senior colleague, a senior manager in the team who wasn't there spoke to me the next day and said, Lynn, they tell me you're encouraging people to leave the organization. And I said, no, I'm not. I'm encouraging them to look at new opportunities within the organization. <laughs> well, that's what they're telling me. Anyway, I, I went to my uh, personal assistant and fortunately she had recorded the whole thing. So I said, can I listen to the tape? So I listened to the tape and no, I certainly did not ask people to leave the organization. So I went back fully uh, somewhat indignant, I suppose, to my colleague and I said, Ian, I didn't tell them. I've just listened to the tape. And without batting an eyelid, he just said, yeah, I've no doubt that's true, Lynn, but that's what they heard you say. And then I realized what he was telling me is that, look, you've come into an organization where there had been some uncertainty before you came. You're a new kid on the block. They don't know you. And you're saying something quite challenging to them. And so they're fearing that this means there's job cuts on the way. And so this idea of, while I knew what I said, unless you actually have other people understand what you say, you haven't really said it at all. Yeah, that's, um, that's so profound. I, I think that's, that's got to be one of the biggest revelations I've ever had um, as a, you know, as a leader is the difference between uh, the difference between saying something, communicating something, and what people actually hear, and I, and I think that's a, yes. a lesson I've learned the hard way. Is no, but I definitely, I definitely never said that. But like your um, your colleague said with such uh, such wisdom, yeah. But that's not what they heard, and uh, and I think the mm, challenge, mm. if you can, that's a different level, isn't it? How do you communicate so Absolutely. that you really articulate, not just that you articulate it well, but that people walk away and they've heard the the heart and the clarity of whatever message you're saying well one of the ways of course is that w whenever you have the opportunity give people the chance then and there to ask questions discuss it to feel comfortable about being pretty brazen in their comments hmm. and so when i joined anglicare um which i went to after world vision and i became the ceo of anglicare south australia i used to have uh, a, a regular town meeting or a couple of town meetings a month, and I would go out to the different offices and regions, and and I would talk for maybe 10 minutes. But for the rest of the time, I said, okay, tell me what it is is on your heart. And by the way, don't feel pressured that I'm the boss and uh, you, you don't want to put yourself in a bad light. I even had set up an email system uh, that they could send questions to the HR people anonymously and I would guarantee I would answer them in the town meeting, even though I didn't know who the person was, if they weren't prepared to actually stand up and give their name. Yeah, I think to, I think some ideas like that, we have to, um, you know, you have to put yourself in the shoes of, uh, of people and actually, you know, try to find a way that, that you remove as many barriers as possible to clearly hear what people want to ask. And, and I like your approach, Lynn, that you address it clearly as well and say, whatever you bring up, I will, because I think, um, 
And one of my favorite books, Blue Ocean Strategy, talks about this idea that it starts with engagement when you want to transform any organization. But the next the next step is is explaining. And I think a lot of us miss that step. We engage, we listen really well, but then there's parts of it that we're disagreeing with what people have said. And we sort of like to put our head in the sand mm. and just ignore it. Um, rather than actually giving people that explanation to say, like you said before, by the way, here are the things I've heard. I'm with you on this. I'm with you on this. Now, this part here, it, you know, I, I've heard you say this, this, and this, but I actually believe, oh, we're going to be doing this, this, or this. And I think when you make that clear, yeah. people, people, as long as that process is fair, which is what they talk about in that book, I think people go, okay, you know what? Um, I, at least I feel, at least I feel like things are being said clearly and it's a fair process. I, I actually had a, a, a matrix that I developed, uh, which uh, when I, when we used to do 360 degree things, I used to report all my feedback that they had given me to my, uh, to my staff. So they knew that I wasn't hiding anything. If, if there, there would always be a warts and all situation here. So they would hear the warts and all. But before I did so, I put this matrix up and the matrix had um, four, four parameters or two pairs of parameters. One was um, surprised, not surprised. In other words, what they told me surprised me or what they told me didn't surprise me. The other parameter of the, of the matrix was will change or will try to change. The other one won't change. And then you end up with four quadrants. So, for example, uh, in the the surprised box uh, will change. These are things I was surprised to hear, and, uh, uh, and I didn't know that, folks. And so I will work to see how I can improve my my performance with respect to that. There. Um, then, in the in the uns, in the unsurprised area, the, there was still a will change one because what I would say there is that look, I actually. If you'd have asked me about certain of my aspects and leadership styles and so on, um, I would have said that. But now that you've told me again, it's made me think that because it matters to you, maybe I need to think about whether I should change some aspects of that. But then on the on the won't change side, um, the the uh, the the there were unsurprised and surprised bits. But, but what essentially happened there is that there were some things that. I'm mandated to do. My job as a CEO is to take the organization to this spot. Um, I'm required by my board or, or by my, not that I had shareholders, but if I did by shareholders. And therefore, there are some things I'm going to do that people aren't necessarily going to like. And yes, I'm surprised you've raised it or I'm not surprised you've raised it. But frankly, it's my mandate. This is what I've got to do. And in a sense, government have mandates as well. And then there are other areas in the won't change bit that won't change because you can't change. Uh, you know, one thing that I was inevitably being surprised by a number of times, because I always forget it, is I'm, I'm, I'm quite a big person. I'm six foot three, 190 uh, centimeters. Um, and so I, I can loom a bit large in, in, in a room. And, uh, uh, and, and some people said, you're a bit daunting when you stand up there and uh, talk and we, we feel a bit overwhelmed sometimes because I've got a deep voice and, and so it sort of booms out. And one of the things I had to say to them is, well, frankly, I can't do anything about my height um, except sit down perhaps. Uh, and <laughs> I use that as a technique sometimes. I didn't stand, I sat to talk. 
and uh, and my voice well sorry that's that's my voice so anyway my point out of, i'm going on a bit long here but my point here is is that you when you go through this mm. opening up what people have said they need to know how you're processing it yes and uh, and that's why i had this matrix of four four quadrants i really like that can you give us the four quadrants again um, well, the one on the, the one side is surprised by what they said and will seek to change. Another one was not surprised by what they said, but will still seek to change. And then on the other side, um, surprised by what uh, you said, but not going to change either because it's my mandate that I this is my job mm. or I actually can't change. Mm. Um and then the other one was not surprised by what you've said, but again, won't change because of mandate or because of this is the way the world is. That's so good. I love that. I love that matrix. That's um, that's really really helpful. I think your uh, your matrix there addresses a key gap, which is people can get really good at listening, but then how do you? It's that it's that helping people feel heard piece again, isn't it? Uh, because sometimes the only way for yeah, someone absolutely. To, oh, very much. they have to have the feedback loop, don't they? We've got to close that loop. Exactly. Yeah. Otherwise, what you've done is is just satisfied yourself that you've spoken um, and uh, therefore you can go away and feel that it's all going to be okay. That might not be the case. That's wonderful, Lynn. Well, uh, I'm just looking at the clock here and this is so much fun. Maybe um, I, I'd love to invite you back for a part two down the track because I feel like we've just hit the tip of the iceberg mm -hmm. for um, uh, Reverend Dr. Lynn Arnold's stories. I feel like there's a whole bank of them we could uh, we could maybe get into in uh, some more episodes down the track. Be happy to participate if that's, uh, if that's of any help. Oh, this is so good. I think listeners are going to enjoy it. Um, let's jump into Leadership Express as we land today, and just for a few quick questions. The first one is about a book. I'm wondering if there's a book that you've gifted to other people again and again, or recommended to people again and again. The uh, Jim Collins, Good to Great, uh, is a great book, but an even greater book is Jim uh, is Good to Great and the Social Sector. It's greater for two reasons. One, it's uh, one fifth the size, uh, <laughs> but two, it actually targets the social sector mm. in, a, in a very distinctive way that talks about the combination of executive leadership and what he refers to as legislative leadership. Mm -hmm. But in fact, that's leadership that has people join you on the journey. Yeah. So Jim Collins is, is those two books. I've had good to great mentioned a lot, but I haven't had the social sector, um, the, the shorter version focused on the social sector. That's, that's an incredible recommendation. I know anyone involved in the social sector, maybe many people who aren't will be, um, jumping on that recommendation. That's wonderful. Lynn, thank you. Well, when I joined, um, Anglicare, um, I, because I'd been introduced to this in world vision, I gave a copy to all of my board members and all of my senior management. And I said, if you want to know what sort of person I'm going to be or, or, or hope to be, mm. then read this book. That's so good. Um, wonderful recommendation. One-on-one uh, -on -one meetings. This is something leaders ask about all the time. What advice would you give to leaders about running great one-on-ones with their direct reports? Um, it's so easy to spend your time talking to somebody, not enough time listening to, to somebody. Uh, and so uh, I, I, I've been in meetings where I, I've not been the, 
the caller of the meeting. In other words, I've been responding to somebody else and been a bit disconcerted when they seem to do all the talking. When I, when the meeting has been for me to come in and explain something, so I, I, I try not to be the one who uh, dominates the conversation. Let let it be an opportunity for people to uh, to to canvas, and then my role to be as much as possible to help facilitate the discussion. Now, obviously, there are some one-on-one meetings where the situation is going to be different, but we're talking in a broad category here. Yeah, absolutely. No, I, I think um, that's that's wonderful advice. Um, do you have any favourite quotes, Lynn, over time that have really stuck with you, or or that are the sort of the the sort of quotes you frame and put on the wall, or have in um, in the back of your mind? Well, um, I'm not sure quite how they they connect to leadership, but but I was often asked. Uh, in, in my later years in World Vision, had World Vision met all my expectations? Because it had been a big leap of faith to, to go into such a different sector to my previous career. And my answer to that was, World Vision met all my expectations, albeit in ways that I never expected. And it sounded an oxymoron of a statement, but it actually meant something enormous to me because I walked into it with some expectations really great expectations, but I, by not straightjacketing myself to those expectations, I ended up being given an even wider field of expectations beyond my imagining. It's, it's very Ephesians 3.20, by the way, mm. beyond all you can ask or imagine. That's what God is like. Well, my, uh, I, I, I try to tell people, don't so straightjacket your expectations that you end up limiting how far you can go. Mm, yeah, that's beautiful. Very, very well said. Um, when it comes to another topic that that comes up again and again, it's about morning routine. You know, people, young leaders, uh, leaders who are managing, uh, you know, being in the C-suite for the first time and, and the added responsibility or a team that's spread across different states. Um time management comes up and, and people inevitably ask about the morning routine. Do you have any advice from your years in leadership? Um, is there anything that's pivotal to your morning routine or just any thoughts on that topic? Well, uh, first of all, opening the day with private prayer is very important. Um, settling in your own mind what are the tasks you hope to complete you hope to complete or at least significantly advance during the day that you want to see done and that you know others will want to see done i also used to find that uh i'd very often on my way to work just stop off and have a coffee with myself and uh, just some quiet time after i'd had my prayers beforehand after i'd um, done that sort of thinking, but just have a bit of quiet time just to pace my own mind so that it didn't then get sort of run over by the busyness of the day that might be ahead. Uh, I'm a big believer in time out of, of silent reflection, silent prayer. Uh, I used to do it in, in, when I was in Parliament, when I was uh, uh, Premier, for example, I would close my office door for half an hour before question time, nobody could come near my office at that time. Staff, you know, or the advisors and all the others, I needed to have half a time when I just settle my mind before going into the fray of question time. Mm. Yeah, I really appreciate you sharing that because I think um, once again, if we come back to 
as a whole culture, we are really, there's this real fascination with mindfulness and meditation and, and silence. And, and so as a, um, you know, as a, as a Christian myself, um, I really appreciate you talking not only about silence, but, but, um, uh, the silent and meditative prayer. And, um, yeah, mm. I think, I think it is when you look at 2022 compared to say a hundred years ago, um, I think it, it yeah, it's, it's only, it's possibly <laughs> only become more important to have that quiet reflection time in such a busy society. The, uh, I certainly agree. And the other thing which I would encourage people to think about where it's possible, have some control of your own diary. Now, that's not always possible because aspects of your diary are given to you by others, uh, sort of more senior to you. But the uh, don't allow the diary just to get filled up by others without you being invested in what's going in there. Um, and when I first became a minister of the crown, it was often, I, I learned very quickly that the practice has often been with ministers that people go to your staff and they say, I want to meet the minister and they get put in the diary. And so suddenly the minister finds he or she's got uh, uh, 40 hours of back-to-back -back meetings in a week or more. Um, and, uh, and, there's, and there's no time to feel that you're invested in that. So I didn't want to be a blocker to people seeing me and I, my track record of seeing people and visiting schools and visiting facilities stands for itself as a very good record. But I wanted some ownership of when and how I did that so that I didn't feel harried or harassed. Rather, I felt that no, this is now a more equal situation between myself and the person or the group or the site that I'm going to. Mm. Yeah, I think that's amazing, amazing advice. And, and just, uh, it, it's funny because I, I talked with a lot of leaders who are in sectors, uh, as an example, maybe schools where there's a lot of different roles that don't normally have um, assistance or executive assistance. And, you know, often your really senior roles do, but I'm, I, I'm often challenging people to think differently. And the reason I'm bringing this up is, it's a, it's a similar thought to think differently about your schedule. And in those sort of roles, sometimes I feel like what people need, but isn't the, isn't the norm in that industry is having someone external to them who's really controlling it for them. And that's what an assistant does. Um, and so it's funny that mm. it's funny that, um, whatever you need to do to create that control over your own schedule, which like you said, some people in different, um, in different industries are limited or different roles. They are limited in that. But if you can create more control, mm. which sometimes, like I say to these busy school leaders, you know what, you are so busy. Um, you may just need someone else to have their head in your schedule so that they can be thinking about that all the time. And you, be, you know, but it, it can be. The lots important of thing roles. is that that person, the, the important thing is that, that person, you have you have confidence in that person and that that person can think inside your head. Um, in other words, that they know, look, I know Lynn needs some space between meetings of this sort and meetings of another sort, or Lynn needs to have some time to, to get ready for the big thing he's got coming up in a couple of days and, and give himself some things. And, and so I, I was lucky that I had personal assistants who, uh, who, who got to know my style and therefore, they didn't just regard my diary as a, as a blank sheet of paper that they could fill up as they wanted. They they thought ahead into into my mind, and I had confidence that they would do that after you know after a time. 
Absolutely. Uh, well, last question for you, Lynn, and this has just been so much fun to, to have a chance to really uh, chat about your story. If you could only give one piece of leadership advice to a young leader, what would you say to them? One piece of leadership advice to a young leader. Um, well, think about what it is that you actually really believe you want to achieve and make that bigger than just your role as the leader in trying to achieve that. Now, that sounds a bit convoluted, but what I mean is that it's not about you, it's about the goal you're trying to achieve. And that if you really think that way, and the goal is really that important to you, then ultimately the goal could well happen, your own role will disappear in time, but the goal will still have succeeded. And that surely is what uh, leadership should be about. It's what Jim Collins talks about in Level mm -hmm. 5 Leadership, where the he talks about the CEO. Uh, the CEO sits on the veranda of his or her retirement house and looks uh, into the future of an organization that they left in a good shape and will now go to better places because of having left it in a good shape, um, but better places nevertheless. Yeah, that's uh, that's wonderful um, and uh, a great thought to uh, to land on. For those who've really enjoyed today, just wondering if there are any um, social media channels where people can follow you or connect with you, Lynn? Well, I, I am on Facebook. Uh, I, I do have a Twitter account, which I, I, I these days I tend more to monitor everyone else's tweets <laughs> rather than putting a great deal on uh, on myself. Um, and, uh, uh, and and of course, I that's just the social media things. And then otherwise, I, I, I'm on LinkedIn. Um, uh, and so people can contact me that way as well. Well, for our, uh, for our listeners, I want to thank you for tuning in. If you have really appreciated something um, Lynn has shared today, then do reach out. Uh, to him on LinkedIn or, or Facebook or um, or Twitter um, and just let him know. I know that always means a lot to to my guests. Um, and don't forget, I also have the John O'White Leadership Podcast and the Leadership Question of the Day podcast. They're two other places you can go to continue to invest in your leadership. But I want to finish today with a really big thank you to you, uh, the Reverend Dr. Lynn Arnold. I promise I wouldn't call you that the whole time, but um, it, it, it has <laughs> meant a lot to me uh, to have you on the podcast. I don't um, underestimate uh, the experience that you have in different roles as, as, uh, as Premier um of uh, of south australia and a ceo and in some in some really significant roles um and uh as expected your your advice today has just been full of wisdom so it's also been a joy to spend time with you thanks for coming on the podcast well i've, en I've enjoyed the conversation enormously thank you so much john it's been a real treat Well, I hope you enjoyed that episode of the Leadership Conversations podcast as much as I did. If you're joining us for the first time, don't forget to check out consultclarity.org. That's our website, consultclarity.org. We have so many free resources on there, including our seven questions on leadership series. 
We've had more than 1,500 leaders from all over the world in all different roles, in different industries, answer these seven questions on leadership. And leaders give these in-depth answers around how they spend their time, uh, a book that's been significant for them. It's just a gold mine. It's completely free to access. So go to consultclarity.org and look for that. We'd also love to interview you about your leadership. I believe your experience, your life, your context means that you have advice on leadership that other leaders can learn from. Yes, you, if you're going, not me. Well, no, I really believe you would have something to add. So if you're looking for a way to give back, it's completely free to get involved. And we would love to interview you through the seven questions on leadership. You just go to consultclarity.org forward slash seven dash questions dash interest or Google consultclarity.org seven questions interest and fill out the form and get involved. We have a free resource on our website called the Leadership Survival Guide. It's a 57 page ebook, 10 world-class leaders giving their thoughts on leadership and that's completely free. It's available on our homepage consultclarity.org right at the top. So make sure you go and get that and download it today. And we have a free daily email that you can subscribe to. We send this out to over 15,000 leaders from around the world. And uh, it contains the highlights of content from our podcasts, our blogs, um, our books, books we're reading. It's got the best content and it gives you exclusive, limited, early access to our masterclasses, workshops, new products, special offers. It's all for our subscribers. You can go to consultclarity.org forward slash subscribe and join 15,000 other leaders. And you know, my gift to you is to work really hard, particularly through the Leadership Conversations podcast. I have been blown away by the quality of the leaders and I'm learning as much as anyone in doing these interviews. So I'm having a great time. And my gift to you is to keep lining up the best leaders I can to invest in your leadership. Your gift to me, if you're finding this helpful, there is something that you could do that would help us out massively. And that is to write a review and to leave a rating for our podcast or wherever you're watching or listening to this. I can't tell you how much that helps us out. Also subscribe or follow. It really does make a difference in helping us to help more leaders become everything they're meant to be. Another thing that means a lot to me personally is when I see our community share our content. So if you do share this or any other piece of content on social media, then thank you and and please do that. And look for me, John O'White or Clarity and tag us in your post. Our team is always looking for posts to engage with from our community. And there's also a chance that we'll share your content uh, to go beyond and share it with our followers. Last of all, you can check out my book. It's called Step Up or Step Out, How to Deal with Difficult People Even If You Hate Conflict. I wrote this book because 50% of the coaching sessions I have with leaders, this topic comes up again and again and again. And it's this idea of how do I have this difficult conversation? How do I lead this person better when I'm finding them difficult? Or in some cases you look and you say, I think I might be leading a difficult person. They're just quite difficult to lead or I'm finding them quite difficult to lead. So there's a three-step process that I unpack in step up or step out. And the amazing thing, and I've literally done this myself and I've heard it anecdotally from other leaders as I've coached them, is that if you follow this process, you will see that person step up and change their behavior or make a decision, which is to step out some of the time. Uh, 95% of the time, people will step up or step out in just four weeks. 
And I stand by that. It's uh, You have to read the book to understand, but uh, I really do believe in it and I've experienced it firsthand. It works. So you can go to Amazon, look up Step Up or Step Out John O. White or store.consultclarity.org forward slash book. Well, thank you so much for listening. We're going to be back with a new episode next time of the Leadership Conversations podcast. And I hope today has helped you to take another step towards becoming the leader you're meant to be. See you next time.